Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. And I said Remnant Podcast with that little lilt of surprise because I keep saying Dispatch Podcast, which this is not. Um, actually, that that little lilt is a little bit like in that um that that uh, Prevagen commercial, you know, for that memory booster that has not been approved by the fda and they always hit you with this with the secret ing- with the key ingredient being from jellyfish and i just love they must have done a thousand takes on that because they 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 clearly have some sort of data or datum that makes people think that if you if you say jellyfish with a bit of bit of you know with, with a little lilt and panache um that uh uh, people will think, oh, well, of course, if it's, it's from jellyfish, that must boost your memory. I mean, if they had said it comes from, uh, you know, the African swallow or the North American shrew, well, that's ridiculous. No way that could boost memory. But we all know, like, you know, jellyfish have really great memories, even they have no developed brain whatsoever. Um, it's got to work. Let me get out my checkbook. Um, anyway, how did I get on this? Oh, the remnant podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're a little, I'm a little, uh, 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 wandery because I just spent 15 minutes with Ryan and guy. Um, and you know, admittedly it was hard to understand guy with the ball gag in his mouth, but, um, uh, trying to figure out what to talk about this morning. And, um, we are going to bring back some version of the drive time thing. I have all sorts of ideas, uh, but these guys are still here. They're just in total silence. And so like, you know, it's, it's for, it, they're kind of like, you know, children of the corn for me. They're, they're, they're watching while I do this by myself and it's, it's kind of off putting. Um, and for you guys, you just have to take my word for it. I could tell you there are like 30 people listening to me right now. Um, and A, you probably wouldn't care. And B, you just have to take my word for it. It's kind of like um saying that I'm 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 being uh produced by Godot. Um and so I guess that raises an interesting question about like, is the absence of something something? Um, or maybe it doesn't raise that, but I've been I was reading some philosophy recently and I came across something which I'm a little embarrassed. I I really if I had learned in college, I've completely, I had completely forgotten called, uh, dialethism. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's D I A L E T H E I S M. And, um, 
It is the belief that uh, um, there are true contradictions out there. It's a branch of philosophy that says there are there are um, true contradictions in the sense that some things are both true and untrue, which violates like the first one of the first principles of logic going back, I believe, to Aristotle, which is that something cannot contradict itself. And anyway, I find this kind of stuff kind of nerdily fascinating and, um, um, you know, and it's kind of like, and so the, the question of can, can, is like, is, is nothing something is uh, sort of is involved with dialethism in the sense that, um, nothing <clears throat> like an empty space, like something that isn't there, a lacuna, a gap, a void, whatever, um, is the absence of something, but we talk about nothing as if it is something. It's sort of like zero, right? Zero actually isn't a number in a certain sense because it contains no quantity. It is the lack of quantity. And yet without zero, you can't have math in a lot of ways. At least that's, that was my big takeaway from that book about zero. And I mean the number zero, not zero mustel. Um, and um, and so dialethism is this idea that it's, it's not that all contradictions are true, but that some are. And, um, you know, one way to think about it is the, uh, the liar's fallacy, right? So if I say what I'm saying right now is a lie, if you take me to be telling the truth, then I'm lying. Because I'm truthfully telling you that I'm lying. If I'm truthfully telling you that I'm lying, then I am lying and not telling you the truth, which makes what I said a lie. If you take me to be lying when I say to you, um, I am lying, then the fact that I am saying I am lying when I am lying means that I'm actually telling the truth. And at some point, that android um, that was hanging out with Harvey Mudd's head blows up. Um, in Star Trek, I had to throw the in Star Trek in there because otherwise that's just a really, um, weird sentence to say. Uh, so anyway, I've been thinking about all this. Maybe I'll write about it in the G file, but, um, I really have nothing more exciting to say about it, except maybe that I'm not sure dialethism is a real thing so much as an epiphenomenon of language and that our language sometimes cannot capture reality. And so it captures two aspects of reality that seem from our sensory position to be true, um, even though they contradict each other. Um, and that doesn't mean the underlying reality is contradictory. Um, or maybe not. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think some of the logic language stuff runs up hard against physics um, and can lead people into weird cul-de-sacs, but I, I, I like it and I wish I had more time for it. Um, but I guess we should go back to like rank punditry stuff. Um, so where to begin? Afghanistan. Joe Biden gave a big speech yesterday about Afghanistan. I missed most of it, but I watched some clips and read some stuff. Um, let me just sort of say bluntly, I think this is a mistake, but I understand why people are for it. Um, this is not one where I'm going to harangue people for being wrong on the fundamental idea that it's just time to get the hell out of there. Um, people are exhausted with the idea that we're there. Um, uh, lots of people 
gave life and limb uh, fighting over there. I, I think that we did not do a great job in how we fought in Afghanistan, but I am one of these people who was always a little reluctant to criticize um, the effort of people who actually put their lives in harm's way. Um, nonetheless, every expert I talked to, both pro staying and, and, and anti, you know, thinks that one of the reasons why it's, we should go, or one of the reasons why it's understandable we should go is that we just didn't do a very good job in actually achieving some of the goals that we had for being in Afghanistan in the first place. I am not particularly persuaded by a lot of the goalpost moving, um, about how, you know, we, we, um, achieved our mission when, when Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, I certainly don't believe that the Taliban are trustworthy, um, interlocutors. Um, I think Biden is almost obviously wrong that the Afghan military, um, will be capable of fending off the Taliban. I've yet to meet or read. I mean, like literally, I mean, I, I, I chime, I, I check in on this stuff fairly regularly in part because it's, you know, I'm at AEI and we got a lot of people who do Afghanistan stuff in part because Steve and Tom Jocelyn, you know, are, are friends and I read their stuff and I talk to them and people like them. Uh, and I, we talk about it on the dispatch podcast from time to time, or I talk about it on TV from time to time. And anyway, I follow this stuff more closely than I do some other foreign policy things. I don't think I've ever seen somebody make the case that Biden made yesterday that, uh, the Afghan, you know, the, the, the Kabul government, uh, military is in fine shape to hold off the Taliban. And it just runs counter to the facts on the ground that we see reported almost literally every day about how, um, their, uh, you know, units are surrendering all over the place. Uh, various tribal leaders are pledging their allegiance. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't know if the country falls to the Taliban in three months or six months or a year. Um, but, and as much as I wouldn't want to bet on that kind of stuff, that's if I had to bet, that's the way I would bet. And, um, so anyway, I, as I said, I get why people want out. Um, I just find it's sort of like, you know, as I think about it, it's a little bit like, um, the death penalty stuff. I'm in favor of the death penalty. Uh, we don't need to get in the weeds as to why I'm in favor of the death penalty. Um, but I'm very much against, um, you know, using the death penalty against people who don't deserve the death penalty. Uh, so if you, you know, I just have to say that because I know most of the common arguments that come back at me and, 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 um, anyway, I'm in favor of the death penalty. I think the people who are opposed to the death penalty, most of their arguments are very unpersuasive or just wrong to me. But I also understand why they're against the death penalty. I mean, it's sort of like, it's one of those things that part of it is, it's, it's a weird mix of emotions, um, aesthetics, and sort of core conviction that is a little immune to the facts or to, you know, narrow arguments about national interest. But I find almost all of the arguments um, for withdrawal um, unpersuasive. and. Um, and I have sympathy for the ones having to do with exhaustion and all that, but you know, I, what are the arguments? You know, one of the ones you'll hear often is we can't be the world's policemen. We can't get involved in every country around the world and blah, blah, blah. 
no one, no one is arguing that we should be involved in every country or be the whole world's policeman. Um, you know, it's a very weird inference or a leap to make to say because there are specific reasons having to do with Afghanistan that we should keep a small token force there. Um, that you then say, okay, so you want to be the world's policeman or you want to intervene everywhere. And moreover, you know, another argument people will make is that we, you know, or, or relatedly is, you know, we, when they say we can't intervene everywhere, we can't be everywhere. They never complain about all the places that we are in the middle of that. We do have boots on the ground. Um, they instead focus simply on Afghanistan. I mean, we've had troops in the Sinai Peninsula, never mind Germany and Japan and Europe, longer than we have had in Afghanistan. And so there's a stolen base here, you know, that the Rand Paul types use, which is to say that um, we can't, we have to leave Afghanistan um, because it's, we can't have troops all around the world. It's not our business and blah, 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 blah. But they don't complain about the places where no one's being killed. Um, they complain about the places which, which are getting the headlines. And I get it as a political strategy, but it leaves out the fact that, you know, the casualty rate in Afghanistan wasn't quite zero, but it was pretty near zero for the last couple of years. So this idea that we're being, you know, we're get we're bugging out of some intractable war that we're in just doesn't conform with the facts. And then there's the problem that's sort of, I mean, it's sort of the Colin Powell thing of the party barn rule. Um, you break it, you bought it. I'm not saying that we broke Afghanistan, but we kind of did take responsibility for it. We lent our prestige and our assurances to a whole generation of Afghans that, you know, we were going to get their back and that, um, that we were going to get rid of the Taliban and people bet on the United States succeeding. And there's a cost that comes from essentially, you know, admitting defeat. I mean, we're not surrendering in the sense of like, we will now be ruled by the Taliban, but we are admitting defeat. That's what we're doing. And I don't care if you don't use the word defeat, um, because that is exactly how it'll be perceived around the world. Um, and particularly among, you know, Taliban and ISIS types and Al Qaeda types out there. Um, which is the one thing I'm glad about the expedited withdrawal that Biden is doing, you know, is that he's at least, if he's going to get us out of there, doing it before September 11th rather than on September 11th seems like the least he could do. I, again, I've said this a million times, but I think declaring the withdrawal date to be September 11th was arguably one of the, you know, if you, if you don't take into account like the costs of mistakes, right? So, I mean, like, some mistakes are really, really stupid, but they are of little consequence. And then there are some mistakes that are only mildly stupid, but they're of enormous consequence. So if you don't factor in consequences just for a second, I think naming September 11th was almost inarguably the single dumbest foreign policy decision of my lifetime. Um, again, not in terms of consequences. There were lots of things. I mean, like there were things that were of much greater stakes, but this was not of no stakes whatsoever. And it was just a, just a free here is a massive propaganda victory um, for you, Taliban. We're going to get out on the 20-year anniversary of us going in because you beat us. And we're going to pick that exact date that, that you know, 3,000 Americans were killed. And it was just incredibly stupid. And I, I'm, a, I'm stunned 
that any serious person inside the Pentagon or the State Department would go along with that without at least some protest. But anyway, so the reason why I'm against it is that, I, you know, you, you, you look at things in terms of not, I mean, I don't want to make a sunk cost fallacy argument here, but we could have recalibrated our deployment in, in Afghanistan in such a way that um, uh, we reduced American casualties even more. But we still would have been sort of like in South Korea, a force of stability that allowed um, Afghanistan to at least stay in this precarious sort of cold war between Taliban and and Afghan forces, the vaguely democratic, mostly corrupt, you know, Kabul government. Um, but and we could have had another generation of of women. Uh, grow up literate without being burnt with acid in the face. We could have had, we could have stood up some more of civil society. I'm not saying this because I'm nation building is my primary objective here, but the cost benefit ratio was, was pretty favorable to the United States at this point. Um, and the other part of my argument is just a pure, you know, real politique argument, having Bagram air force base in Afghanistan is better than not having it particularly when the Afghans want it to be there. Um, uh, being at the intersection of a lot of the great powers of, of the East, which the Biden administration says are our primary concern, is valuable. Not giving the Taliban um, unified control of Afghanistan is in our interest. Not admitting defeat is in our interest. And the idea that because you're tired of something that people are calling a war, which really wasn't a war in the way we imagine war anymore for a while. You know, I mean, we don't say we're still in the Korean war, even though technically we are, we never signed a peace treaty. I believe that we are still just in the middle of a long armistice. Um, but we don't, no one talks about being in the Korean war. If you're getting, getting casualties down to single digits in Afghanistan, saying that this is an endless war, it's, it's some, a bit of hype. And meanwhile, having our presence there, not admitting defeat, being able to project power into the region, um, being able to prevent the Taliban and the groups that it harbors. And when I say harbors, you know, this is the point that Tom Jocelyn and Steve make all the time. It's not just that the Taliban is harboring Al-Qaeda, like they are visitors in their camp and they're giving them, you know, pita bread and tea or whatever a lot of the members of the taliban are members of al-qaeda and vice versa um there is overlapping hierarchy among these people and giving all that back uh to the enemy and they're still the enemy just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me but again this is one of these few areas where i really do hope i'm wrong and you know i hope i certainly hope the afghan government stands up and can and and keep at least kabul and in that region free um, I certainly hope the Taliban doesn't take over. I certainly hope this all works out, but I just not the way I would bet. Anyway, uh, Tokyo Olympics. These are some of the topics. So these are the things we wrote down or I wrote down when I was talking to, um, Ryan and guy, uh, Af 
Afghanistan, January 6th video, CRT, Tucker Carlson, Tokyo Olympics, Avenatti, Michael Wolf, New York subway. Those are my show notes. Um, the dialethism thing was, uh, not discussed. Um, and now I'm just craving to know what Guy and Ryan think about dialethism because I know they've, they've, they've thought about this quite a bit. Um, I believe Guy has written, um, a 20,000 word essay on the sound of one hand clapping. Um, uh, all right. So on the January 6th video, I think we talked about this a little bit on the dispatch podcast the other day. I finally watched it to, uh, because David was like, if you haven't seen it, you really should watch it before we do this. And I watched it. It made me very, 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 I think the technical word for it is angry. Um, it made me angry at these jackwads who were doing this who were tearing apart the Capitol and beating up these cops um, and who were trying to subvert democracy. It made me very angry at Donald Trump. It made me very angry at all of the people right now who are desperately trying to figure out a way to uh, make January 6th not an albatross for the GOP and for Donald Trump. It is, um, and they're trying every way possible except the only way that would work which is to condemn it, to own it, to say whatever role I had in this, I am ashamed of. And Donald Trump should have been uh, convicted for this because it was evil what happened. And if you haven't watched it, you should watch it, particularly if you're one of these people who says, I don't need to watch it because, it, you know, January 6th is all overblown. Go watch it. You know, and I got to say one of the things which bolsters my argument uh, that I had with uh, that Joshua Tate guy um, from the Bulwark uh, a while back. Uh, the doc, the, the narrator of that thing goes out of his way quite a few times to, to sort of make a point that I've been making, which is as heinous as what these people were doing, the, at least the sincere ones believe they were fighting for democracy, not against it. Um, this, you know, widespread talking point that the right is now turning authoritarian because it hates democracy. Um, I just think it's just wrong. I mean, I, 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 do I think there are authoritarians out there on the right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's some very highbrow ones who are making very, you know, uh, ornate arguments um, against uh, liberalism and democracy. Um, but I don't think many of the people changing hang Mike Pence are close students of, I don't know, Adrian Vermeule. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the sincere people out there really believe that democracy was stolen. And, um, a lot of the nonsense out there about the, the Arizona audit and all that, that is motivated again by the sincere people, because Lord knows there are a lot of cynical jackwads who, you know, deserve to be, you know, banished from, you know, pelted off the public stage for life. But there are sincere people out there who, you know, who believe the lie that the election was stolen, who believe all of this stuff, who actually believe that if they look hard enough, they will find um, the, you know, the elusive bamboo ballot that proves uh, that the Chinese somehow got into Maricopa County and with their, with their, you know, yellow peril paper products stole our democracy. Um, and and so the reason I bring this up is that, that if, you know, if you want to engage a political opponent 
on grounds that you think you might be successful, you might at least try to pass the Turing test of understanding what they're talking about. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the grand stories of American progressivism and the American left is, and which is, you know, a big part of, you know, my first book, liberal fascism, which I, you know, and this argument I still stand by is that the left is constantly wanting to have, um, the enemies it imagined it has rather than the enemies it really has. Um, and look, I am open to talking about the rising tide of an American variant of fascism in the United States from the alt-right to, you know, this new corporatism and industrial policy stuff, um, to the various forms of nationalism. I mean, there's stuff to worry about there for sure. Um, but one of the reasons why, a lot of conservatives, including well-meaning conservatives, ignore these complaints from the left is the left has literally been saying this for 70 years. And they've been saying it about good and decent people who didn't have a fascist bone in their body. And eventually the crying wolf problem um, uh, becomes real. And I think, you know, this is, you can make a case that this is one of those instances. Um, because it, look, I mean, if you were saying that Ronald Reagan was a fascist and they did, lots and lots of people did, the fascist gun in the West was a really popular line about him when he was governor. Um, if you want to say that Barry Goldwater was a fascist, which CBS Evening News did, um, I you know I used to talk about this in my speeches for my first book tour. You know, uh, Charlie Rangel used to say about the contract with America um, that Newt was introdu introducing in 1994. You know, he used to say Hitler wasn't even talking about doing things like this which is true hitler didn't talk a lot about term limiting committee chairs in congress or zero based budgeting um or getting rid of you know the franking privilege in the post office um and so anyway you know you you scream wolf long enough and then when you know something lupine emerges on the horizon i you have a credibility problem. Uh, but anyway, uh, watch the video if you haven't. You can find it on YouTube. We'll put it in the show notes. You can find it, I'm sure, at the New York Times. Uh, what else was on here? CRT. I think I'm officially burnt out on, on critical race theory. I wrote my column about it for today. Um, um, I talked about it a good deal with um, Will Salatan, which got in, getting a lot of really great feedback about that conversation where we were in um, at times, violent agreement about all sorts of things, which is, you know, a rarity with right-left dialogue kind of thing. And I actually just used the word dialogue unironically, and no one smashed my uh, my guitar against the wall of Delta House, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, my my basic view on on the critical race theory stuff is that that. At the end of the day, the Republicans have the are on the, are on the better side of the argument, even if I cannot stand some of the ridiculous hyperbole coming from the right about it. Um, but at the same time, the the project that critical race theory or critical theory um, tackles is a legitimate one, even if I think they find it way too explanatory and their proposed solutions that they come from it, that come from it. I don't find persuasive. Um, it just seems to me that pretty much all reasonable people can find some plausibility and room to agree with 
the more humble um, claims of the critical theorists that there are things that are not intended in society that have disparate outcomes, that some of those disparate outcomes are undesirable or unfair, um, and it's worth exploring as to why. Um, the problem is, is that the stuff that people, and I think this is, this was a key point from Will Salatan. The, the, the problem is, is that the stuff people are calling critical race theory isn't really about critical race theory. It's about, um, white guilt mongering. It's about ascribing to whiteness, um, some inherent sinfulness that needs to be destroyed, um, or purged or atoned for. And, um, this jibes very well with, with James Burnham's, you know, core thesis in his book called Suicide of the West, which was that Western civilization was, was crushing under the weight of, of liberal guilt. Um, that guilt is driving so much of, of sort of defeatism and anti-patriotism and charges of racism and colonialism and anti-colonial blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I think that the, the, the problem with the, whatever we're going to end up finally calling this stuff that is going on in all these campuses is, um, all these high schools and, and are all these campuses and soon and in some high schools is, um, is maps much more like a religious revival where people are being asked to, um, confess their sins, be born again all this kind of thing. And we're treating it as if it's some idea that escaped, you know, Herbert Marcuse's Frankfurt laboratory, which it's not. Um, and I think I cut this from the actual G file this week, which also I got and is available to everybody. It's out from behind the members only, uh, rope. Um, I had this thing in there, but I cut it for length. Um, you know, some, I don't think I've talked about this on here. So one of my theories as to why the backlash against critical race theory is so intense, um, putting aside all of the hyping and Fox newsification of it and all that. Um, I think one of the reasons why it's so intense is that enor an enormous number of parents have watched as their kids for years have been taught about aspects of white guilt, white, you know, uh, white privilege, um, uh, sort of critical race theory, adjacent notions, anti-racism kind of notions that percolate up in their kid's English class or history class. I think a lot of parents, I mean, look, most parents are younger than me. Parents of high school and grade school age kids are younger than me now, which is really depressing. Um, I grew up learning far more about, you know, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King than I ever did about, um, you know, uh, reconstruction era America or any of that kind of stuff. Um, save and to the extent of the rise of Jim Crow. Um, I, you know, it took me a long time to learn a lot, much of anything about the American revolution. Um, and, and so the, the idea that, you know, as the, the Joanne Reed put it, which I just the gift that keeps on giving, you know, about how basically um, kids today need CR need, need critical race theory because 
Mo, in her telling, most schools are taught what she called Confederate race theory, which is basically this idea that, you know, it's the vision of the daughters of the American Confederacy and have gone with the wind is what dominates in most school and that slavery isn't, wasn't that big a deal and, and all that kind of stuff, which is just nonsense. It was nonsense for my generation. It's certainly nonsense for my kids' generation. And, and a lot of parents have gone along with this, a lot of white parents, I should say, but also a lot of black parents, you know, who also want their kids to learn about other things than this, you know, one important, but not all important narrative. Um, people feel like they have in good faith gone along with a lot of this stuff, a lot of this PC stuff or whatever label you want to put on it. And, and then all of a sudden they're being told that unless you agree to double down with critical race theory, you're a racist and people are like, just come on. I mean, like it's the straw that breaks the camel's back kind of thing. It's like, really? I've been dealing with this, you know, I've been having these conversations with my kid for all this time. And, and, and now you're telling me none of that goes on the scoreboard as a good faith effort to grapple with racial issues in this country. None of it. Um, and I'll give you an example is like uh, my daughter before this whole critical race flop, I guess it was 10th grade because 11th grade, she went off to Spain. Uh, they had to read, uh, to kill a mockingbird. And the argument that I spent, I, I don't know, three, six months talking to my daughter about because it was just constantly coming up in school. Um, she, the, the, the consensus view was that To Kill a Mockingbird is a deeply problematic book because it denies the African-American or the black characters agency. And instead the hero is a white savior rather than, you know, I guess what would be ideal is a black savior. And, and, and my daughter, who I think did a pretty good job pushing back on this, or at least coming up with a way to resolve this point is that, first of all, it's a book, right? So it's a book that is trying to paint what life was actually like at the moment, not the way we would like to imagine life having been. Second, um, you know, as, this is as my daughter put it, you guys are constantly telling us about the important uh, importance of white allyship, which I take to be um, white people allying themselves with those fighting for civil rights and all that kind of stuff. Which sounds like a perfectly fine thing to be. It rings a little weird off my ear that my kid is being told for you know for all the tuition that we pay um, for high school uh, that. Like one of the key takeaways she's gotten is the importance of white allyship, but okay, it's fine. Um, and if you're going to tell us that white allyship is so great, maybe um, we could hold out the possibility that Atticus Finch is a pretty good white ally. Um, but the most important point, which my daughter made, was that um, if the criticism of the book is that it denies blacks agency um well isn't that what was evil about jim crow in the first place was that it denied black people agency or the you know or the full you know suite of freedoms that white people had isn't that the whole reason why we're supposed to hate jim crow and slavery for that reason is it denied the individual agency of people 
And now the book is supposedly problematic because it accurately depicts the fact that if, if black people wanted justice, brave white allies would have to jump into the fray to help get it for them, or at least try to help get it for them. I mean, this is the, this is, anyway, this is the kind of stuff that I was getting from my daughter two years ago and how it occupied vast amounts of, of her time and classroom discussion for almost an entire school year. And now I'm being told that if the schools don't embrace CRT or whatever we're going to call CRT, that um, the status quo of not teaching about, not teaching what Randy Weidengarten calls accurate history will continue. Um, accurate history has been taught in our high schools for a very long time now. And I just think people are fed up, uh, you know, had this sort of frustrated, spontaneous backlash against this stuff because they feel like all of the good faith work that they've put in of following the lead of educators counts for nothing. And they're still being called racist if they don't double or triple down on it. I guess I've repeated myself, but that's what I was trying to get at. On the Tucker Carlson thing, I've spent the last few days with a lot of boneheads coming after me on Tucker on Twitter demanding that I um, apologize or retract my tweet about Tucker. I will not. Um, you know, I'm open to if more evidence comes out. But, you know, Tucker's initial claim was that he was the target of uh, the NSA, that they were targeting him, that were spying on him to take down his show. Um, and take his show off the air. I do not believe that is true. I still do not believe that is true. You know, the only thing that's changed is that Axios reported that um, there's reason to believe that Tucker was trying to land an interview with Vladimir Putin, and he was talking to intermediaries of Vladimir Putin, and that got caught up on uh, on NSA monitoring, which it should. Because that's what the NSA does is monitor communications with uh, uh, foreign powers, particularly foreign you know, enemies. And I think you know, Russia is, for all intents and purposes, an enemy. And uh, that does not mean that they were targeting Tucker. That, that does not mean uh, that they were trying to take his show off the air. Uh, I talked to a pretty prominent lawyer who's fluent in this world. And his basic theory is that someone called Tucker and gave him a friendly heads up saying, Hey dude, you're popping up on our radar here. Cause, um, uh, you know, you're talking to these guys in, un in unsecure ways and you, you might want to knock it off or be careful because this could blow up in your face. And Tucker in turn took this as and and whether that person was the whistleblower as Tucker refers to him or merely a sort of journalist cutout for a whistleblower of some kind or some other party, uh, some, wherever, I don't know. Um, Tucker turned that into, this is all about me. They're coming after me and my show to deny you, um, you know, the, the sweet, sweet nectar of my wisdom. And I just don't buy it. I still don't buy it. I see no reason to change uh, my position on this yet. But again, we could learn new things. Um, and, I find the constant goalpost moving on this to be so typical of so many things in the sort of MAGA and MAGA adjacent world where, you know, sort of like Trump would say something absolutely outlandish. I mean, totally back guano crazy and then, or untrue. And then a bunch of, you know, Trumpy spelunkers would 
Well, first of all, people would wait for the media to overreact because they would, and they would go to 11 when a seven was all that was required. And then when the, when the hysteria over it was, was, uh, you know, good and frothy, then the, you know, the, the Trump Praetorians would go and find some nugget that had, that lent maybe 2% or 5% veracity to what Trump had said. And they say, see, Trump was entirely right. And all you people overreacted. You people are crazy. Trump always tells the truth, yada, yada, yada. Like the, like the Arab Americans or Muslim Americans celebrating on the rooftops after 9-11. You know, I remember John Nolte found one story about like six people on a roof. And somehow this confirmed the thousands of people that, that, that Trump saw or how, you know, the fudging of the FISA application um, and the Carter Page stuff somehow proved that the FBI was um, directly spying on the Trump campaign. I mean, you can go down a long list. Do not want to relitigate all of these things, but it's the same thing with this Tucker thing. People are moving the goalposts um, because they want Tucker to be telling the whole truth and they're, and it's just exhausting. So anyway, that's what I have to say about that. About the Tokyo Olympics, uh, I have nothing to say. Um, I like Tokyo. Um, I don't think that they should get rid of all the fans. I think it's shocking that they have um, been so bad about getting people vaccinated. I mean, that does raise an interesting point. Why is it the United States has been so much better than any other large country um, at doing this? and? I think credit goes to the Trump administration. I think credit goes to the Biden administration. I think credit goes to um, a lot of American institutions. Um, I do wish these lunkheads who are refusing to get vaccinated would get vaccinated. And I really wish people like Chip Roy and Ted Cruz would stop feeding the stupid with this stuff about how trying to get people vaccinated is somehow, you know, um, police state stuff. It's just not. I mean, I don't want to go over all this again, but, you know, George Washington, you know, imposed curfews and quarantines to fight yellow fever. This is like one of the most established things in, in, in American and British common law and liberal theory that there are certain things that require, um, suspension of some of the, the the conventional rules for the greater good. And Biden really isn't proposing any suspension of the greater good. He had an offhand thing about going door to door to try to get people vaccinated. And people are turning this into a freaking Gadsden flag moment. And I find it grotesque and stupid. And it's getting people, it's going to get people killed. I mean, look, if you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. Fine. There are a handful of people who might have a good reason for that. A handful. But don't turn it into some friggin' crazy, you know, grand principle upon which you'll die on. It's just stupid. It's just really stupid. And it's just stupid. It's in, in some ways it's dumber than the mask stuff. And why catering to the irrational and the irrational positions of, you know, a slice of your base is considered good politics is beyond me. And it's it, the only thing it's sort of, only thing about any of this that where I'm, I'm a little bit more on the sort of right wing side of this thing. And I don't mean the more conservative side 
because I'm just talking about where the tribes are. Uh, and I think my position is utterly conservative and more conservative than most of these people who are losing their, their minds about, you know, this stuff. I am more conservative than Lauren Bobbitt and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene in part because one of the key components of conservatism properly understood is sanity and realism. And, um, but anyway, one of the places where I'm more on the sort of right wing tribal side is I do think it is annoying how the, the sort of MAGA world people who won't get vaccinated are all idiots and Neanderthals, but the blacks and Hispanics who won't get vaccinated have an understandable aversion and distrust of institutions and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I, I know the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. A, a lot of people think it was something that other than what it was, it was still bad. And there are other reasons why African-Americans might have, uh, you know, reasons to distrust, uh, the healthcare system less so for Hispanics, but even so you should not have like this double standard where it is this sort of saintly misunderstanding um for one demographic and proof that they're all uh subhuman jackasses um for another de demographic just do what you can to get people vaccinated please get vaccinated it is like it is among the biggest no-brainers out there and the people who are spreading fear and misinformation about uh vaccines are trying to turn it into this profound civil rights issue um they're doing something I think that is objectively evil and, um, and it, it embarrasses me as, as an American, uh, Michael Evanati, bah! I mean, I just, I'm very happy. Uh, he got what he deserved. Um, this, you know, the other day I tweeted that one of the great things about not going full MAGA is I've been able to be consistent on, um, Alan Dershowitz for, uh, 30 years. Um, I, uh, feel similarly about Avenatti. Um, I think from the beginning, I don't know, maybe before I got a better read on who he actually was, but pretty much from the beginning, I've always thought he was an ass clown. Um, and, uh, uh, and I am relishing the fact that he's going to jail for 30 months. It, it, there's no, there's no other higher emotion than just, well, in a, a sense of, satisfaction that the justice system is 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 doing right by me but also a certain amount of schadenfreude and 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 that's about it i have nothing to say about the new york subways except my general rule that if you are hip if if the only way to make the a train is to go be hip deep in in subway water which is not quite sewer water but it is sewer water adjacent um unless it is a life-saving thing where if you don't get home in time to feed quarters into your grandmother's coin-operated dialysis machine, um, don't get in the water. Just don't, don't do it. The stuff that that water is scooping up um, is, and if you haven't seen the videos of it, there are these videos of this person going down this flight of stairs towards the subway, and you can see the subway going in the background, but for some reason, the sort of the landing of these stairs where she is, is like under four feet of water. And she just sort of resolutely says, okay, I'm going to walk in this, even though like the water is up to her sternum and, uh, wouldn't do it. Shouldn't do it. It's disgusting. 
Um, I, I I don't do enough pop culture stuff on here, so let me just end on 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 this. Uh, I recently watched the second season of Black Summer, which is uh, Zombie Fair. Um, um, it's on Netflix, and it made me realize that I remembered so little from the first season. And you'll understand that if you've seen it, you know, it, it, the editing style is at times a little annoying with these vignettes that are sometimes um, not in chronological order, but like all feel at times like flashbacks and it's a little bit like the movie Memento at times where each scene is explaining the scene that came before it in some way. And um, anyway, so I rewatched, I just rewatched the first season of it and I got to say, you know, I'm very partial to walking dead, um, in part because of a true sunk cost fallacy. I've watched the entire run. Even David French has given up on walking dead. Not only have I have watched all of walking dead, I have also watched, um, fear of the walking dead and whatever that weird one starring kids was, which I can't even remember what it's called. I've watched all of those too. And, um, I still think that the first few seasons of walking dead were really, really strong, but I gotta say that I think black summer gets, first of all, it solves a lot of the problems that, um, that walking dead and a lot of other zombie things get into. Um, I really think that the, the core threat of the only way that zombieism that a zombie zombie apocalypse could actually work is if you had fast zombies and the zombies in, in black summer are legit fast. Um, and that's also why like, um, you know, uh, 30 days later, um, is so effective and so believable. And, um, but I think this gets at some of the darker possibilities of a zombie apocalypse, even better than the walking dead does, even though one of the things, I mean, it's just so you know, if you haven't seen it and you're interested in this stuff, black summer is dark. I mean, it makes walking dead seem almost a little Disney ish. Um, and you got to prepare yourself for that. But, um, um, one of the things I do like about Walking Dead, and I'm sure I've talked about this on here, is I like that it is following essentially the evolution of man insofar as the zombies essentially, I mean, think of it this way, Zomb- forget that they're zombies, just think of them as the state of nature. And, um, you know, red in tooth and claw, life is brutal, nasty and short, all that stuff, right? So that the zombies are, or how to put it, zombies are entropy. And, you know, all things are subject to entropy, except those things that actively resist entropy. Um, um, and, and anyway, so like it starts in a sort of after, well, after the breakdown of civilization, obviously it starts in a kind of, uh, you know, everybody for themselves, then they realize that they have to form little bands or platoons we would call them tribes uh they share mutual interest they consider other tribes their default position is that the the, another tribe is 
to be considered a threat until proven otherwise. Um, it's all zero sum. Uh, you know, there's a big denouement. I think it's season three, might be four, where the cannibal tribe says, look, we learned the hard way that you're either um, cattle or the butcher, um, which is another way, way lobbyists say you're either on, you're either at the table or or you're on the menu. Um, and then as uh, humanity gets a better grip on how to deal with nature and how to manipulate nature and how to cope and adjust to nature, um, it falls back onto agriculture and, uh, and it learns to build walls and it creates essentially city-states. And then it discovers the glories of trade and, um, um, and the villains, instead of just being the heads of other nomadic tribes, actually turn into stationary bandits, which as uh, uh, Mansur Olson talks about, was like the first you know, uh, building block for civilizations where these guys realized that they could get better return on their investments by settling down and taxing populations rather than um, raiding because raiding um, reduced investment by the villages that were raided. But if you instead sold them protection like the mob, um, you could actually build an empire. And that's what Negan was. He was a stationary bandit. Um, so I really like that part of The Walking Dead. I think it's, um, you know, it, it sort of tracks with all my Suicide of the West stuff. And maybe that's where Black Summer will go. But, um, I don't know, but, and again, if, if you are not, in, I want to be very clear about this. If you are not interested in zombie things, do not watch black summer. Um, not because it's like super zombie-ish. I mean, there are very few zombies on screen. Um, but if you don't like this dystopian apocalyptic stuff, um, if you are looking for noodle salad, people who have, who wear, um, sweaters down by the lake without sweating, um, and wonderful conversations with other beautiful people. Um, this is not that, and there are plenty of movies for that. So anyway, have a great weekend. And, um, I promise I will have other things to talk about next week, maybe in the, um, in, in more of an organized and less disjointed fashion. And until Wednesday, I guess I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.